0: We are all living in social isolation due to the quarantine from COVID-19. Isolation is changing our habits and our moods. It's ravaging the economy, and it's changing how we work. One positive change is that more people have been reconnecting with their friends and family over frequent calls and video chats. Isolation is not a normal way for humans to live. We are social animals, and we need social interaction. We've changed how we use internet products. And there's been an evolution in trends in online shopping, social networking, and video communication software. Cortland Allen is the founder of Indie Hackers, and Anurag Goel is the founder of Render, a new cloud provider. Both Cortland and Anurag are friends of mine, and they joined this episode to talk about how their lives are changing as a result of social isolation. It was a real treat to talk to these guys, as this is such a time of gratitude. So I hope you enjoyed as well.
1: Okay. Andrew and Cortland, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having us. It's uh, great to be back, Jeff.
2: Yeah, thank you, Jeff. It's always fun to be here.
0: I just want to start off by saying I'm happy to have friends in the tech world. It's been nice getting to know you guys, even through the context. The context that we've gotten to know each other is kind of through business, and much of the interactions have been virtual. But it is nice to have friends, and I think this is a time of gratitude so i just want to mention that up front it's been a real pleasure getting to know both of
1: you guys feel the same way you know a lot of us is obviously business you know we all run different companies but few people get into the startup world or the tech world who don't actually authentically enjoy it so it's a great place to make friends and and really have lifelong relationships to come out of it and especially
2: during this time when virtual friendships are all we have
0: (laughs) (laughs) this is all we
1: got the zoom calls
0: Silicon Valley or tech world based friendships versus like college friendships or elementary school friendships are they are different because they start off in this kind of, you know, you're trying to find your footing. It's a little bit transactional. Everybody's trying to get to know each other and have coffees. And it has a little bit more of a synthetic feel at first. But then, you know, everybody just gradually, I guess you learn to trust other people and becomes more like those friendships of college or elementary school, but maybe not completely. I don't know. But hopefully we have moved past the synthetic friendship feeling to some degree.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. More than move past it, Jeff.
0: Okay. Wonderful. Uh, So how have each of your lives
1: changed in the midst of isolation? I have to say that I was arguably living the social distancing lifestyle before this all started. So it hasn't changed all that much. I work from home on Indie Hackers. I sit right here at my desk most of the time. I cook a lot of meals. It's basically the same. I rarely went into the office beforehand. Now I obviously never go into the office stripe. The biggest change though has been just the lack of actually seeing friends in person. I haven't actually seen somebody who I know well face to face in over a month. The only time I leave my house is to go to the grocery store. And so I've sort of replaced all those face-to-face interactions with Zoom calls and text messaging and poker games and all of the sort of digital relationships, which I don't think quite replace the real thing. But outside of that, uh, I think I'm just doing most of the same things I've always done.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about specifically this in your context, Cortland, uh, this morning, because We were both going to be on the show, and I realized that life hasn't probably changed for you that much. On the other hand, for me, it has changed significantly because I was going into work every day. We have a nice little office close to Caltrain, in SF, and we have nine people now who are in that office, and I miss being around them. I miss the bandwidth, of course, that uh, you can get when you're just talking face-to-face. And I also just miss just happy hours where we're just sitting together, chatting about nothing in particular, and just bonding as a group, as a team. Uh, That's obviously much harder to do, no matter how many virtual happy hours you have. And then on the personal side, I think I've not been very good at meeting friends regularly, even though I would like to. So in that sense, perhaps things have changed a little less for me, but I am doing Zoom calls with friends and that is keeping sane.
0: This one thing I was doing even before the isolation, Anurag, I haven't been great at keeping up with friends or family myself. and I think Corland maybe we've talked about this a little bit as well, but like when you find something you really like to do, like if you find a business you want to run and you're running it and it's really successful, it's just blissful in a lot of ways. And, you know, a lot of the rest of the world melts away. And it's not that you wouldn't want to be talking to other friends or you wouldn't want to be talking to other family members, but you kind of just wish there were 26 hours in the day and you could devote those two hours to actually socializing with people rather than than working on your thing. But I started doing this thing, which is like, in some ways it's not great, but I call it virtual runs, where basically I put on a Bluetooth headset and I I like to go running and I like schedule calls with friends while I'm going for a run. And that's actually been a pretty good way to connect with people. And it is, I guess it was predictive of the socially isolated world that we live in. But now we're doing like lots of calls with people. I know everybody has started doing this which is funny. You guys are doing more phone calls with your friends and family members, I imagine?
1: Yeah, a lot more. I've been talking to my mom every day for like an hour, much to her delight. I've been Zooming and FaceTiming with with friends all over. And to your point about these social runs that you used to do, I, I think, you know, having these sort of scheduled like friendship interactions, it feels off in a way, but it also makes so much sense because you're kind of doing them at the same time you'd be doing other things. You're running while talking to friends. And when I was in college and high school, when you just naturally make tons and tons of friends, it's because you have so many of these activities that overlap. You're in the same classes, you need to walk to school together, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, you're going to talk to people. But when you have a startup or when you're coding and you get into flow and it's blissful, like you said, it's not really a group activity. That's you doing this like really addictive thing by yourself. And it doesn't naturally afford the opportunity to like really interact with other people. So I think scheduling it makes a lot of sense. And I think also... You know, sort of aligning it so it coincides with something you're already doing, going for a run, walking to the office, also it just makes it way easier and kind of greases the wheels.
2: Yeah. Uh, I was using my uh, time during my commute to the office to sometimes call my mom. And every time I'd call her and she would know that I was driving, she was like, Why are you calling me when you're <laughs> driving? And now I am like Portland talking to her pretty much every day. And she's obviously happier that I'm sitting on my couch as opposed to driving when talking to her.
0: The motivation for that, is it just because it feels like the world is ending and you want to talk to your mom more? Or is it because you don't feel like you have people to talk to or because everybody else is doing it? What's the motivation for Because talk- I'm doing something similar.
2: I think it's also just to check in on her. I mean, she's in the, the age bracket where everyone over 60 is more susceptible to this. And my mom currently lives in India. So I want to make sure that things are going fine with her and that she has everything that she needs. And also because she's also stuck at home, I think it helps her and us to just connect more frequently.
1: Yeah, same here. My mom is 61. She had a case of acute bronchitis early in February. So I've been paranoid and had her locked down at home in Atlanta for the last like month and a half. And she is one of the most extroverted people I've ever met in my entire life. Like she goes crazy if she's stuck at home, not able to talk to anybody. So I think just keeping her company, talking to her on the phone all the time, <laughs> making sure she's staying at home, staying healthy is really important to me.
0: Did you set her up with a protocol of grocery delivery and wiping down oh, everything she's when got it, it, comes it She's in. got it all
1: figured out. She's got like a spot in the garage for new packages, she leaves them there for a while, wipes them down. She has a fridge full of food that she stocked up a month and a half ago. So she really hasn't left the house and hasn't needed to and won't need to for quite a while. But I'm also worried that, you know, the cases in Georgia, different areas of the country have taken this more or less seriously. The governor of Georgia was sort of trending on Twitter last week for only recently figuring out that you could transmit the coronavirus without symptoms. He's like, oh, we just figured this out. This is a bigger deal than we thought. And it's like, man, everyone's known this for a month. I think that just kind of reflects the attitude down there among a lot of people, including a lot of my mom's friends, a lot of my high school friends. So, you know, I'm worried that the lockdown isn't going to end anytime soon and hopefully we don't get to a point where the hospitals are over capacity and people aren't able to get the treatment they need. But I'd say this definitely factors into why I'm checking out on my mom and some other friends as well a lot more often than I would be otherwise.
0: And Reg, what's been the -the on-the-ground response in India thus far? Like, what does your mom say about what she's hearing from other people?
2: Oh, they're in full-on lockdown. They've actually, especially in New Delhi, where she lives, there are now 20 Locations in the city, neighborhoods in the city where the police are enforcing a complete lockdown and people aren't allowed to leave those locations. And they seem to be sort of hotbeds of where the infection is right now, for the most part. And so everyone is, they seem to be following it. I think it's much more stringent. India doesn't have as much of a personal liberty, I will do what I want, government Governments cannot take my guns away from me, that kind of attitude in general. So I think people are generally just staying indoors and we're all hoping that, you know, in a country of 1.3 billion people, the numbers continue to stay low.
0: Mm. And do you have your mom set up with something similar where she like gets the food delivered and is wiping it down or something? Because like that's one of the logistical things that I've kind of had to train up some of the other people in my family on and and really emphasize what's been that process like for you coordinating it through India?
2: Oh, she's actually fairly independent. She is a doctor and she stopped working recently because, well, she retired and then she was still seeing patients until a full lockdown, but she wasn't actually in sort of emergency services. So She has been on it when it comes to groceries and stocking up and just she likes to cook. So, you know, this isn't very different for her. And uh, at least so far, things have gone fine and she's just ready to be locked in for some more time or much Mm -hmm. more time.
0: So, Cortland, you and I had talked online a few weeks ago about the fact that you had gotten more into poker And you just described it as even online poker as a a social activity. And I found that funny because back when I was a poker player, it was like totally non social. It was like, Mm -hmm. I I think it was basically how you used to play StarCraft, where it just like
1: put on your headset, you're not talking to anybody, you're you're just not talking to
0: anybody. Yeah, you're just totally in the zone. And before that, you were, I guess that was your experience with chess at least. Like when you were more on the chess side, it sounds like you've shifted from the chess side to the poker side, which I'm proud of. So in doing so, you've become more social, though.
1: I mean, it's less of a shift. It's more of a all of the above. So I play a lot of chess. Uh, I have chess lessons every Wednesday uh, with this guy I hired. He's a chess pro. He's super good. And we just talk for an hour. But I've been playing a lot of poker, too. And I actually started last year for the reasons that we were talking about earlier, just for social reasons. I love being able to schedule a time to hang out with people. Poker is like four or five hours of sitting across from a bunch of buddies at a table talking about life and business and relationships and family stuff and jokes while you're playing this like super heady, you know, thoughtful game. And so we would play once or twice a month last year. And then SF entered the shelter in place sort of phase a couple weeks ago, and we decided to move our game online. So we've been using this app and we've been having Zoom calls at the same time that we play. And we have fully transitioned into a life of poker degeneracy. We're playing pretty much every single night. I was up till 2 or 3 a.m. last night. I lost a huge hand. I'll have to show it to you after because I know you're a fan of poker. It was the worst cooler I've ever had in my life, man. But it's fun because we are all just, you know, keeping up with each other and staying in contact. And it's just a great way to be social. It's interesting how much isolation has resulted in people being almost more social than they would be. No one has anything else to do. No one has other plans. Everyone's sitting at home. You know, they answer the phone when you call. They're down to hop onto a poker game and play for four or five hours at night, almost every night. And this just wasn't really true a few weeks ago.
0: Well, and strangely, I think the norms have changed. Like, I think for some reason or another, we've all had some desire to reconnect with our loved ones and to spend more time socializing. And that desire has been reinforced by a change of norms. Now it's like, It is an encouraged norm to have more of these socializations.
1: Totally. I mean, it makes sense. Like I was just saying, you know, nobody's doing anything else. You know, everybody's sitting (laughs) at home. Yes. And I think also just like the fact that there's this pandemic and it's just killing so many people, it's a reminder that, you know, life is precious and life is temporary. And I think it's easy to just sort of live life kind of always in the present, always focusing on, you know, what's happening now, not really look up and take time to account for the fact that like we're all getting older. It's not slowing down or getting older faster, it seems like. But I think when there's a global pandemic and you have loved ones and you have people who aren't necessarily the healthiest, you sort of remember that, like, it can all end. You know, and there's probably, you know, I'm not sure how bad this will get, but probably all of us will know someone who doesn't make it through the, the whole coronavirus pandemic. So I, that's been at the back of my mind since January, actually. I've been thinking about it a lot. And, you know, I don't, I don't think it's surprising that we all care a little bit more about our friendships and relationships
0: In what ways do you think the world will be permanently changed other than obviously there's the potential for losing a loved one or people getting sick, but what do you guys think are going to be the lasting implications?
2: I mean, the most obvious one is people are going to be more open to doing more things remotely instead of in person because a lot of people have now realized that they can do it and it isn't as difficult or in some cases, just it is now technically possible to do it. And I think that we will definitely see a lot of local jobs uh, converting to remote jobs. Not, I wouldn't say, obviously, that all the local jobs are, or most of them will convert, but I think a good chunk will, a material chunk will. So that's the biggest one. But in other terms, I mean, obviously, for startups, the funding situation is changing and continues to change. And coming out of this my sense is that we will see a period of low valuations of less founder-friendly terms. And then it's just all the people who've been laid off. I just don't think that some of those jobs are coming back, honestly. And so I suspect that the unemployment rate is going to continue to be high for several months, and uh, especially in tech also. And that's pretty worrying.
1: Yeah, I agree with pretty much all those things, especially the remote stuff. A lot of people will do this remote stuff and it won't work for them and they'll go back as soon as they can. But for a lot of people it will work and they'll realize that they don't necessarily need the overhead of an office or they don't necessarily want to go into a place to work, be co-located. And so they'll sort of stick with it. I'm hoping that our relationship as a society with experts changes. I think there's never been uh, an event in recent history where we've had to rely so much and so urgently on what experts are telling us is unfolding. Quite frankly, as a layperson, we're completely oblivious. You know, we wouldn't even know what a coronavirus was if there wasn't for virologists and epidemiologists telling us what to expect for the past few months. And I think, you know, it's unfolding so quickly that we kind of have to just sit back and trust what's going on. But hopefully this has lasting implications for other topics that matter to me, like climate change, etc. And, and sort of teaching us as a society that even though we can't see something or reason about it ourselves, that we kind of have to trust, you know, to some degree that the scientists and the people researching this stuff know what they're talking about. So that's a potential change. I also think that, you know, to the point about being more social and and having all these Zoom calls and poker games and that society is, we're kind of on this inevitable march towards more isolation, you know, for like hundreds of years probably, we've just become more and more isolated, less and less tribal. And the reason that it works is because we have all this technology that makes it possible to be isolated while still being social. I can move, 3,000 miles away from my family and my friends where I grew up because I know we have airplanes and I can just fly back, you know, and I can spend all my time in my apartment because I know I've got Zoom, et cetera. And so I think in a lot of ways, this technology that connects us also is a justification for living more disconnected lives. So I wouldn't be shocked if we see just a lot more isolation and a lot better tools that come out of this for dealing with that isolation. You know, part of me is excited. I like to see good tools, I like to see, you know, easier methods of communicating and in being in touch with their friends and family. But also, you know, part of me is sad because I think there's something to be said for the kind of tribal human lifestyle of seeing people in person and being part of a big group and the advantages that that confers. So uh, we'll see what happens in another two or three years. Well, on the part of
0: trusting experts or our changing relationship to experts, Bill Gates has really been giving a masterclass in how to display expertise and how to express that expertise. This is a guy who has been studying this subject, the subject of pandemics, for a very long time, but he still finds a way to explain it in layman's terms, in almost the most convincing and simple language that could potentially be used. It's inspiring to me. It's instructive to me about how to talk about things that you feel you are somewhat authoritative on.
1: Mm. I haven't been paying much attention to what Bill Gates has been saying. Has he been tweeting?
0: He's been giving some TED Talks, or he gave a TED interview. He's been going on some news programs and just talking about what we know, what we don't know, basically what we have to do in terms of the social isolation and why that's so important and why there's not really a middle ground despite the fact that it slams the economy and kind of being a voice of extremely measured reassurance in the sense that he's just telling you you know what needs to be done in the sense of being a condensed funnel of information through which a lot of expertise is being funneled. Because he just talks to all these, you know, all the smartest scientists and people who have been writing about this. And it feels like a very well-condensed stream of information coming from Bill Gates. I think it's a great show of expertise and leadership.
2: I just hope enough people listen to him because on the one hand, we have all these experts, Bill Gates, Dr. Fauci, being really great at helping the general public understand what's going on. On the other hand, we have things like the 5G coronavirus rumors that are taking hold. And and I just don't know how or why in a time like this, people would choose to believe stuff like this. But I just think that we're again seeing polarization and division in the same ways as what led to Donald Trump being elected in 2016, But I'm hoping that at some point these things will reduce and that the government even might have to intervene to cut down on some of this false information. But right now, it seems to be worrying that people are jumping to conclusions based on rumors and ignoring the experts, at least in some parts of the country. Now, you know, the three of us live in an extremely privileged, fortunate part of America. And uh, we have access to people like Bill Gates talking on TV or Dr. Bob Wachter on Twitter. He's been amazing at explaining what's going on in San Francisco hospitals. And every day he posts a chart, he posts the situation at UCSF hospitals, he compares it with the rest of the country. And again, as someone who has access to Twitter, who is very proficient and active on Twitter, it's a great source of information for me coming from a doctor who is also digitally really proficient But a lot of people don't. And a lot of people will never see what Dr. Wacker or even Dr. Fauci or Bill Gates have to say. And that's the worrying part. And I don't know how we can change it because, you know, Fox News continues to be Fox News and NBC continues to be NBC.
1: I think that's such a great point. And whenever we have any of these big societal shifts or conversations, I think it exposes a lot of the divides and the cracks in between how people get their information and Really just like the different, I think, skill sets involved in filtering out information. When I talk to people like you guys, when I talk to my friends in tech, I'm sure most people listen to this podcast. I spend a lot of time online, a lot of time on Twitter, a lot of time on the computers. We're just relatively practiced at seeing websites and seeing information and trying to filter out what's true, what's not. When I talk to family members living in you know, Georgia, like they're not. right. They're forwarding me rumors that they found on Facebook. And to them, like there's no, they just they haven't lived a life where they've necessarily needed to be able to filter out that information and figure out what's good versus what's not. Whereas if you're, I don't know, a software engineer, you're constantly Googling and looking on Stack Overflow and trying to find the answer. And it's just like a skill you've just had, you've had to flex that muscle thousands and thousands of times. And so it is worrying. It is worrying to see, you know, just how easily misinformation can spread and just how confused a lot of people who are honestly trying to find the truth. And who sincerely are searching for it, but just don't necessarily know who to trust, who to listen to they're not really plugged in the same way that a lot of other people are to be honest like I could talk about this for an hour because I, I also think the media, especially the tech media and the sort of blogosphere, has not necessarily done a great job at this from the beginning they've sort of downplayed the seriousness of the virus they themselves as the people who are supposed to be the best at finding information. I mean, they're journalists. They're supposed to be literally professionals at, at telling fact from fiction and telling the right stories have themselves gotten it wrong. So that doesn't necessarily leave a lot of hope for like sort of the average person on the ground who's not an expert journalist, who's not professional at tech, to go online and really differentiate between Dr. Fauci saying something and a rumor about 5G causing the coronavirus spread.
0: Well, one thing I've always liked about the podcast format is it's unfiltered conversations with experts in many cases and that way the listener gets to hear for themselves what is the expert saying rather than the format of that being condensed down into an article now obviously the trade off there is that you just get a high volume of information that's not presented in a nicer fashion and in this process, you know, the journalistic process of talking to experts and condensing that information. You can have the lens of the journalist be directing that information in a political direction. But the function of interviewing people and then condensing that down into a shorter article, that function does still exist. And I'm sure there are plenty of people who performed that function correctly. And we're calling for whatever, social distancing, or we're calling for more paranoia about the virus before this kind of paranoia made it to to the mainstream. These people happen to not be as surfaced in the Twitter sphere. I feel like the outcry about Vox journalists or, you know, other left-leaning outlets that, you know, quote unquote, didn't pay enough attention. I mean, it's like kind of unsurprising. And it's just like, it's some people that didn't respond well enough. But I think the world of journalism has become so big and become so granular. Like we're basically journalists ourselves, uh, at Cortland, uh, you know, interviewing people. So there's just such a higher volume of information. Not that, it, you know, I guess. I guess excuses journalists from coming to an incorrect conclusion and then shouting that incorrect conclusion from the rooftops. I do wonder just more like what is actionable. And I worry more about, yes, my relatives who are spreading rumors, because I don't really know what to do to have them become more cognizant. You know, Certainly, I'm not going to be able to police the standards of information on the internet. I just wonder how I can inspire some behavioral change among my relatives.
1: I'm not that forgiving of journalists. I think as a journalist, you have a responsibility. And if you have this conflict of interest and it's telling you, hey, we get the most clicks when we publish gossip that bashes the tech industry. uh, And you filter all of your articles through that, even to the point where you will publish misinformation and downplay significant and important events just because that's what's going to give you the more clicks. Like, I just don't have a lot of sympathy for you. And I think that media organizations need to really question their incentives and question what drives them and make sure that doesn't sort of send them over the edge in in times like this and situations like this. And obviously, like you're right, the world of journalism is huge. It's not just, you know, not like it's monolithic and everybody's getting this wrong. There's been a lot of great journalism done that's helped a lot of people. But I also, you know, agree with your point about certain formats just being excellent. The podcast format is excellent because you're not really getting a message filtered through the lens of a journalist. The host is right here on the podcast talking to the experts, and you get to hear it from the experts' mouths with all their caveats and all of their insights. And I think in a time like this where you're dealing with such a, quite frankly, like scientific phenomenon, a biological phenomenon, one where like you really need experts because journalists don't necessarily know what they're talking about. I don't necessarily know what I'm talking about if I bring an expert on. I think it's more important to have a format where the experts can speak for themselves. And I think that sort of lowers the risk of the journalists sort of pushing their own agenda misinterpreting what's being said, which we've seen a lot of as well.
2: I also think that especially during a time like this, I'm hoping that the clickbaity stuff is going to die down because people feel more of a sense of social responsibility because they see everything bad that's going on. So as journalists, hopefully with that sense of increased responsibility to help people in general and with a sense of charity, I hope that people are able to look beyond just the clicks and the money and truly help the readers. I'm just optimistic in that sense, and I'm hoping that that is happening across the board. I do think some people got it wrong earlier, but again, we're all humans. We make mistakes.
0: So shifting back to purely online subjects that we're more well-versed in, Have you guys seen any new online products that have gotten started as a result of the virus, the opportunistic product starting? Have you seen anything interesting?
2: I haven't seen any opportunistic sort of predatory products yet. I do think that people are trying to pass off what they already have as perhaps a little more helpful for the virus, because somehow they make up how it's more helpful when everyone's social distancing but what i have seen is a lot of people especially on render we just were seeing an explosion of websites and resources related to the virus and people are building a lot of things to help people not just deal with the virus but also in specific situations where you know someone built a website for his wife who was doing a lot of telemedicine calls and she just wanted a good system for tracking those calls and timing them. And he just built a really simple view app because he mm-hmm. wanted to get into view. And I think he showed up on Hacker News too. And that's just an example of just ingenuity and people taking this time to do something useful and learn in the process. And so we're seeing a lot of that on Render when we see websites being created these days.
1: I've seen a ton on indie hackers. There's just so many people who are basically sitting at home with a lot of free time on their hands and who have the skills to build something or the desire to build something. And they're building all sorts of coronavirus checkers and trackers and and info products to help disseminate information, little dashboards to follow along with the stats in your hometown or your area, things to help people basically spread sort of these good faith efforts, like wearing masks, literally countless projects. We launched a group a couple weeks ago on Hackers called the Coronavirus Group, just because there's so much conversation happening around this topic. And it's happening for different reasons. You know, some people are just thinking very opportunistically like, okay, well, this thing is happening. There's lots of change. How can I, as a founder, build something that takes advantage of this and, you know, perhaps build something successful. But a lot of people are operating what I see as being altruistically, just trying to help and seeing themselves as part of some bigger global conversation and movement where everybody's kind of on the same page and we all have a common enemy. So I like seeing that stuff. It feels really good to see it's kind of heartening, you know, like when when something bad happens that you can kind of count on people to at least come together and do good for each other. Whereas in situations where the world is just kind of operating normally, you don't see as much of that coming together mindset.
2: On that note, one thing that I have seen that feels a bit opportunistic is all the recruiting companies are trying to compile these layoff lists and using sort of viral marketing or what have you to try and, uh, be more visible because they're compiling a list of people who've been laid off and then connecting them to you yep. know whoever and i think that the, obviously some of that is useful but in a lot of cases i see that just from the tone and from how it's being presented it's come across as opportunistic
1: mm-hmm. yeah it's it's a tough line to walk because basically the entire conversation now is all about the coronavirus. I scrolled through my Twitter feed the other day, and I, I think I had to count like 19 tweets before I saw one tweet that wasn't talking about the pandemic or the economy. And it's kind of like uh, like walking into a funeral. Like you can't have the same conversation, you can't have the same marketing that you had otherwise, because you're just not really, you know, being in line with the tone of the conversation. But on the other hand, it's also complex. I mean, if you are a restaurant business, if you're in the sort of like hotel industry, if you're in the recruiting industry you're probably facing pretty dire straits right now, where it's kind of like do or die, like your company's existence hangs in the balance. And so on one hand, I think people are being opportunistic and kind of off tone. And it's easy to do that if you're not careful. But on the other, I think people are also pretty desperate because in a period of a couple of weeks, they've gone from probably having a solidly operating business to looking bankruptcy or uh, the end of their company and the headlights and having to figure out what to do. It's pretty desperate times for a lot of founders, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's almost hard to not to appear tasteless in any kind of marketing that is not you know just like things that are going to immediately help people in coronavirus time but it's weird because we're in this such a digital economy and we're at least us three our day-to-day lives are fairly minimally affected by uh, the virus as far as I can tell with you guys. And you have to maintain this degree of tact because there are a lot of people that are really, really impacted by this. On that front, like I really do wonder about the retail shops and the restaurants that are getting just slammed by this. I mean, there is like this 5 to 10x adoption of retail and food delivery. And I don't think much of that business is going to these retail shops and restaurants. And I just wonder what the secular impact of this is going to be as more and more people learn about delivery. And you got virtual kitchens, and you have all this retail space in this restaurant space that's basically not like doesn't serve a purpose anymore like we'll see what happens afterwards but i really wonder what happens to all the excess real estate
2: it gets turned into uh amazon stores
1: (laughs) yeah amazon's gonna buy up all the uh shuttered restaurants i heard that's
0: what they did with the shopping malls i heard amazon went on a shopping mall buying spree
2: yeah they're just either going to convert them to these uh, Amazon Go stores, some of these restaurants that where you can just walk in and I don't want to be an ad for Amazon right now, but it's a pretty cool experience. And or otherwise, I mean, with larger buildings, I can imagine them being turned into warehouses for deliveries.
1: I wonder how many companies that are shuttering now just won't ever be replaced. How many, because whenever you have any sort of technological shift, you have just kind of a long transition period. You know, there's probably a long period of time where people were writing and horses and buggies at the same time people had cars on the road and when those horses died like they probably didn't get replaced i think this is going to kill a lot of businesses that you know some of them will come back like we probably still want restaurants but there's probably a lot of physical locations that just don't need to be physical anymore and there's just going to be a ton of real estate left over and the implications of that i can't even speculate about i'm not an economist but i think it's going to be pretty transformative
0: and so how have your own businesses changed i'd like to know more about how you've seen the changes in society through the lens of each of your businesses, you know, running render a hosting company and Cortland running indie hackers.
2: So for me personally, and for render, I think we're actually seeing growth. We continue to see growth, but I don't know how much of that growth is just the growth that we would have seen otherwise versus growth because of the pandemic it's really hard to tell. And I think in some ways, it's very early to tell. But our March numbers have actually been, in some cases, have doubled. And April continues to look better in terms of just revenue and user growth as well. Again, it's very hard for us to tease how much of that is just more people finding out about Render or more people using Render versus people doing more things because of the virus. One indicator that tells me that it's Perhaps not as much of a virus-related thing is traffic on the weekends continues to be lower than traffic on weekdays, which means that you know people aren't necessarily building more things in their free time on Render, and they're still using it for work. That's an educated guess, but again, we won't know until a couple of months from now.
1: Well, that's fascinating. Actually, I should check my weekend numbers and compare them to uh, my weekday numbers. We actually had a pretty big weekend last week. On indie hackers, which is pretty unusual for us because we get a lot of our traffic during the week for people basically working on things. But what we saw in March was a pretty steep decline in traffic, especially around like early to mid March when, you know, I would say the West started to take the pandemic a lot more seriously. It was kind of this one or two week period where Italy went on lockdown and South by Southwest was canceled for the first time in its history and the NBA, you know, put the kibosh on their entire season. And suddenly, everyone went and thinking, you know, the coronavirus is just this far away thing I read about in the news sometimes. they like, this is actually affecting my life here today. And like pretty much every week after that, our traffic went lower until the very end of March, where we've sort of been having a V-shaped recovery, which is what some people are talking about happening to the economy. I'm not sure if that'll happen with the economy, but with our traffic, it's gone way back up. People have just started... I think people were just shell-shocked for a while. The only thing they wanted to read about was the coronavirus. And with Andy Hackers, since we're publishing a lot of content on how to start a business and how to market your business, etc., that just took a backseat to you know, oh my God, is everybody going to die next week? It just wasn't you know sort of up there in the list of priorities. Now I think people have sort of you know adjusted. They've sort of gotten their bearings. They figured out what's going on, and a lot more founders and entrepreneurs. Are coming to Indie Hackers to try to figure out, okay, what am I gonna do? What does this mean for my business? You know, I, I don't have time to sit around and shell shocked like I have been the last couple of weeks. I actually need to take action and do things. And so we've seen a lot more conversations, a lot more projects being started. And I think some other websites have seen the same thing. Sahel from Gumroad tweeted out a picture of the number of creators releasing products on Gumroad. And it was like an exponential graph with massive numbers of people selling things online in the last couple months. I'm not shocked by that. People are at home, a lot of people have lost their jobs especially for what he's doing with, with creators who don't necessarily know how to code, but can definitely you know put out some writing or some sort of um, digital product or sell goods online. Maybe that's their best bet to make money while they're looking for a new job. The unemployment numbers are pretty staggering. So you know, I think that's that plays a role.
0: Yeah, I mean, it would be really interesting to see how this ends up impacting the online gig economy, because I've always thought that Fiverr, was an underappreciated place where people could earn a living. Like, I think probably a lot of the people that have been driving Uber may eventually find, maybe partially through this pandemic, that there are a lot of, like, jobs on Fiverr, for example, that they could find and transition to a digital career. And that could eventually lead to maybe more of these people becoming indie hacker type of people. It's kind of a maybe a starry-eyed or overly optimistic perspective on the impacts here. But there is an online gig economy. In addition to the online creative economy, there's an online gig economy. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, some of the gig workers can utilize that to become more digitized.
1: Speaking of projects that people have released during the coronavirus, somebody I had on the Indie Actors podcast recently released a website called moderndayjobs.com. And the headline is Changing Times Call for New Ways of Earning Money. And it's just a list of 100 different ways to make money online as somebody who's not necessarily a developer. So they've got Upwork and Fiverr on there, Rev for doing transcriptions, Amazon Mechanical Turk, and 96 other different businesses and companies that you can use to basically get a job online if you're just sitting around at home all day, not Mm. making any income.
0: Mm. That's great. You know, one thing I've been pleased by is the fact that this has shown us that the internet can give us a lot of resilience to these like societal black swan events. I've typically been kind of afraid of the fact that the entire world is now running on AWS and it is kind of this company that's a single point of failure. But, you know, in some ways it's provided our society with extreme resilience. So I don't know, that is one nice lesson to come out of this.
2: Yeah, I think the internet is actually getting better as a result, because we're now creating more capacity, both network capacity and compute capacity, just in response to just heavily increased online activity. And I think that this capacity isn't going to go away. So in some sense, we come out of this with a better internet, a more resilient internet, just as a result of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you had asked me six months ago what do I think would be more catastrophic? AWS going down or all of American small businesses shutting down for weeks? (laughs) I probably would have chosen the latter. And now we're getting to see how that plays out. And like, surprisingly, I mean, there's no riots on the street. It's not good. It's obviously not a great situation. It's going to take a long time for all the sort of second order effects to play out and the second order effects of those second order effects to play out. But I feel like there's an underlying resiliency. The Internet's getting stronger. And it makes me a little bit less worried about there being a single point of failure to see that people are dynamic creatures. We react. The government reacts when things happen and things go down. We figure out ways around it.
0: What's something each of you have learned about yourself from this virus experience so far that you didn't know about yourself beforehand?
1: That I
2: absolutely dislike working from home.
1: I don't know. I think my ability to predict the future is really not that good. Uh, maybe i was overly confident in january
2: well, i mean this is a black swan event i don't think you can do anything about that
1: you can't but there's news coming out about this in january and i remember actually sitting at one of these poker games that i was a part of and we were we had a graph up of the infection rate in wuhan and we were looking at it and like, you know it was like a 1200 the day before it had been at like 900 or something and we were worrying about it and i have like a little chat in my google hangouts with some friends like well, you know what, what should we be doing? Should we like leave major cities? Like, what do we do? My friend's like, no, 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 I don't, you know, there's nothing to really be done. Don't do that. But I was worried enough about it back then to actually be talking about it in January. And yet I didn't change anything. I didn't buy any stock. I didn't sell any stock. I didn't <laughs> buy any precautions. I didn't stockpile any goods. I didn't do anything. I just sort of sat there like a deer in the headlights. So <laughs> yeah, I guess it taught me that, you know, if in the case of a zombie apocalypse or any other like, foreseeable event that that starts Uh, I'm probably just not going to do anything. (laughs) That's worrying.
2: (laughs) Well, now that you're aware of it, you're probably going to do something next time because you'll be like, oh, you know, last time this happened.
1: Hopefully, hopefully, we'll see.
0: But it's like one man's decisiveness is another man's being panicked.
1: You know, that's a good point. I've talked to so many people and I keep hearing this word panic. And I remember in February telling my mom to stay quarantined at home and and a friend was like, oh, you know, you're you're spreading panic. But I look out, I just don't... I don't see that much panic. I don't see stores being looted and riots on the street. Like I see a lot of people dying from a virus. And I think, you know, one form of panic is basically being the deer in the headlights. I think it's not just fight or flight. I think it's fight, flight or freeze. And that a lot of times when we interface with these extraordinary decisions and events, we just freeze up and we don't take any action. But I think not taking action is a decision in and of itself. And we gotta weigh the cost and the benefits of that as well. So I think you're right you know like we shouldn't make these like hasty panic decisions just because something's happening doesn't mean we need to take action oftentimes taking action is better than doing nothing and sometimes not taking any action at all is itself a way of panicking
2: i am a little worried about the stores being closed and some of those closed stores being vandalized or looted the instances of that seem to be growing i just hope that this isn't something that accelerates as more people lose their jobs and we truly get to a stores being looted situation?
1: I mean, I think it will accelerate, hopefully not that much. But I I guess for me, it's just a cost-benefit analysis. You know, like what's more, should we have kept everything open to avoid panic, but then dealt with the cost of digging mass graves for two million people? Like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't don't know if the trade-off makes sense, but now it's for sure a concern. People don't have jobs if they don't have income and stores are closed and this lasts for months and months and months. I'm sure we're going to have to pay those costs too. All
0: right, guys. Well, just to close off, any other reflections on how life has changed for you or what you expect in the near future?
2: For me, another thing that's been crazy is recruiting in this time. We continue Mm -hmm. to hire people and engineers and not being able to see them face-to-face before making them an offer is not something we've done in the past. And I think that that, has been challenging. Being able to quickly adapt our on-site interview process to a remote on-site interview process has been challenging, not just for us, but I think for pretty much any company that's hiring right now. In some sense, it's also challenging for people who are looking for jobs and even for people who aren't looking for jobs because they were laid off, but because they just want a new job. And the recruiting industry, I think, is going to be impacted by this in a lot of ways, but I'm hoping that uh, somehow this also helps make it easier to interview engineers remotely. Hopefully someone will come out with tools that make a remote on-site
1: easier. I think the cool thing about uh, running a business is you constantly run into other business ideas. There's so many things you're like, oh, I would love (laughs) to pay for this, but it doesn't exist. I hope someone starts a company to do this thing.
0: But so the interviewing.io, CoderPad suite of things, that doesn't do it for you?
2: I think they're okay. I don't think that they replace the experience of just spending more time with the candidate when they're online or when they're on site and getting a ton of just ambient signal both for the candidate and for the company in terms of, you know, how they interact with other people around them, how they work with the team when we go out to lunch, what are the things they talk about? You can't really do the lunch interview anymore unless you want to make it really awkward. And so I think we're missing out on some of those signals. It's not the worst thing, and especially compared to everything else, but it is something that is interesting and something that we have adapted.
1: Yeah, Andy Hackers is, we're an all remote team. And so I'm working from San Francisco. My brother's working from New York City. Our community manager's working from the UK, et cetera. And so our sort of interview process hasn't, we haven't really had to sort of evaluate people on these, like how do we connect in person type things because we never actually have to connect in person. But one thing we have had to shift on a lot in recent weeks is just the way that we do our content, the way we do our podcast, the way that we write our newsletters. Uh, we're doing a little bit less evergreen stuff, a little bit less like tried and true business advice and stories, and a little bit more current events, news, things that are important to people right now, just because we've seen the shift in what people's attention is focused on. And people care about what's going on in their lives right now. And so that's an interesting trade-off to make. There's all sorts of... Implications if you're trying to do things that are relevant in the modern day and how fast you have to have your turnaround time become. And I'm struggling with that a little bit. But uh, I think that's probably the biggest change for me in my work life and in my personal life. I think I, it might be time for me to hire a poker coach <laughs> if I'm going to be playing every night. <laughs> it gets expensive if you lose a lot. So that's all the changes for me.
2: The only other thing I think that I have realized is just how fortunate I am and just how much of a difference it makes when you have a financial cushion, when you have a job and you don't have to worry about being laid off. You don't have to worry about getting sick or going to the doctor, not having insurance. It just underscores all of the ways in which my life is so much easier because I've just been lucky.
0: 100%. I mean, I basically feel at this point like, at least I feel like I'm in virtual reality. Like the life that I live is so dissimilar from the average person, you know, just in terms of, you know, as a digitally empowered person, you really just have such a massive advantage and massive fortune. That is definitely something to reflect on.
1: Yeah, I think we're all very lucky to have found ourselves in the careers that we're in. And, you know, I worry a little bit that there's increasingly becoming two Americas. There's people who live like this and people who don't. And it's just hard to be part of the group that's not. And so I feel incredibly fortunate and lucky as well. And, you know, I, I'd like to see people build more things to get more people online and get more people building companies online and figure out ways to sort of spread the benefits of basically having an income that you derive digitally that's a little bit immune to some of the things like this. Because I think, you know, it's it's evident from all of our lives that like, yeah, we've had some inconveniences, but life goes on and we're fine and we don't have to deal with some of the disastrous consequences. So hopefully we can use this whole disaster to sort of get more people to a place like that and change some of the infrastructure so that people don't have to worry about healthcare, don't have to worry about their next paycheck. And it's not just us sitting on this podcast talking like this.
0: All right. Well, guys, great talking to you. Anorag, you know, keep the business going. Cortland, don't lose all your money. Don't become a degenerate. Uh, get some sleep. Guys, thanks a lot. It's a real pleasure talking to you and really grateful to have access to you.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, for likewise.
0: Me okay, guys.